Hello, I'm Alex Zane, film journalist, movie fan, and your host for a trip to the movies. I'm currently in our podcast studio a mile beneath the streets of London, and in a moment, my guest. This week, the wonderful actor George Mackay will be taking us on a trip to the movies and talking about his fantastic new thriller, Femme. Thank you for downloading the podcast. This episode is brought to you by My Limitless, the subscription membership from Odeon Cinemas. From only £14.99 a month, you can see all the movies at Odeon whenever you like. With a three-month minimum term, the possibilities are limitless. Right, that explains the name. But that's not all. Think of those cracking recliners at Odeon Lux Cinemas. Think of access to movies before they're officially released. Think of 10% off all the food and drink you'd like, including at their Oscars bars. Sign up online today by going to odeon.co.uk. Go on, give them a whirl and see how much fun life as a cinema goer can be when you are truly limitless. Also, if you'd like a pair of free tickets to head to your nearest Odeon, stick around after the interview and I'll tell you how you can get your hands on some. And if you would like to watch today's interview in glorious Technicolor, head over to our Trip to the Movies YouTube channel and please, while you are there, hit subscribe and help us grow the pod into a giant temple of film. For all the latest updates and to get in touch with us, should you wish, we are at Trip to Movies Pod. That is at Trip to Movies Pod on all social media. Right then, time to introduce today's guest who I interviewed just last week on Zoom. So let's do this. Hello and welcome to A Trip to the Movies where each week a special guest takes us on their perfect night out at the cinema. This week we are joined by a brilliant actor whose incredible and eclectic CV includes everything from the lead role in director Sam Mendes' stunning World War One film 1917 to appearing in the wonderful UK comedy drama Pride to playing Viggo Mortensen's son in the excellent Captain Fantastic. His latest film is a gripping and devilishly clever edge-of-your-seat thriller called Femme. Here to tell us about that and take us on his perfect trip to the movies, it's the amazingly talented George Mackay. George, fantastic to see you. How are you? I'm really well, thank you. How are you? Do you know what? I'm I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I'm all the better for, uh, for watching your new movie, Femme, uh, which I just saw yesterday. Uh, what a movie. Congratulations, first of all. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, I really did. Um, give us a brief overview of what Femme is about and, and the catalyst, I guess, which is the most important thing that starts the story of these characters going. Okay, so I guess firstly, the film is about drag and the way that we sort of can build and create identities beyond ourselves. And then, but the the sort of the 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 catalyst for the story is basically you begin the film with Jules, who is played by Nathan Stewart Jarrett, who is a drag artist at the kind of height of his powers. Um, and at the beginning of the film, there's an altercation with um, this character Preston, who I play, in which there's a terrible homophobic attack where um, they uh, they sort of attack Jules because of what he's he's in his drag outfit in this shop. Uh, and then the film jumps a few months later where Jules is still piecing himself back together from that attack. And he goes for the first time to somewhere he feels safe to a gay sauna where he sees the guy I play, Preston, and realizes, oh, this is where all of that kind of hate and animosity is kind of bundled up from. And not recognizing Jules in drag, uh, out of drag, sorry, we then pick each other up and Jules begins a relationship with Preston so to exact his revenge. Uh, that's uh, that's a great a great brief synopsis. Thank you for that, George. That's that's what I read. Um, when I read a little bit about it, I was like, right, okay. And you've taken me to the point where I was like, I think I know what's going to happen. And the word I think should be used to describe this film is surprising. Um, you are taken places that you don't expect to be taken. It constantly pulls the rug from under you. Um, Tell me about your initial reaction when you first read this script by Sam Freeman and Ung Joon Pig, because I imagine it's the kind of script that you remember exactly where you were when you read it. Yeah, exactly. I was actually I was actually on a train when I when I when I read it, and I was absolutely blown away. Like I was, I was sort of I was kind of bowled over, slightly intimidated, and then massively thrilled. Um, 
as a piece of writing, it is so taut. It's so beautifully put together. And as you say, it's kind of as a reader for the first time, you kind of like, okay, I think I've got this. I think I get the sort of the angle that they're pushing. And then it kind of goes another level and another level and it unfolds and twists and turns. Um, and, and what it looks at, it's kind of looks at everything sort of so fairly and in it's quite a sort of compromising read as well, because you see yourself in kind of both characters as to like, okay, this is when I presented a certain part of myself and this is the power in that. This is the danger of that. And but then as then sort of thinking about it as an actor, it was like thrilling because because it's such a meaty role, both Jules and Preston. They're kind of like they're multiple characters within themselves um, because they have sort of created personas based on a certain element of them. So to hide another element of them and then enter into a relationship where they're then playing other versions of those things in order to sort of try and cat and mouse with each other. So it's um, it was a very exciting to read it. You use the word thrilling there. Now, obviously, at the start, as you described it, it, it begins with this awful homophobic attack. But I do think it is important to say that this isn't a grim British drama. Not that there's anything wrong with those. This is a thrilling neo-noir that just basically removes the kind of, I guess, hyper-masculine men you normally see inhabit that genre and replaces them with characters that you rarely see in this kind of film. Yeah, that's. I mean, you've well, you've said it beautifully in terms of that's what that's what Sam and Ping wanted to do. There, this is the first feature film that they've directed. Sam was a screenwriter or is a screenwriter, and Ping is a director in theatre. And they came together with this idea as fans of that genre of the kind of neo noir thriller. I, I mean, sort of those seventies kind of amazing films like, you know, like Goodfellas, Taxi Driver. Um, and then it was sort of more recently, Good Times was a real touchstone for them as well by the Safdie brothers. But they're often these kind of hyper macho, fast paced um, kind of thrill rides. And they wanted to put a queer character at the center of that because as queer filmmakers themselves never sort of felt like felt that their voice were was kind of represented in that story. So they did this short film with Papara Seydou and Harris Dickinson playing kind of equivalent versions of the Jules and Preston that, that Nathan and I play. Um, and that sort of garnered some success and kind of led to the feature film. Um, and it's exactly that. It's it's very British and Indian in a lot of ways, but the touchstones are actually that kind of like frenetic adrenaline pumping American neo-noir. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, it's a beautiful kind of cross-pollination of a few things. And as I started, um, I started telling you at the start and then I was like, no, 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 we'll save it for air. Save it for air. It is, it's a movie that I've been thinking about for the last 24 hours. I saw it about 24 hours ago. And it just, it really asks questions of the audience. You are you, you are left questioning, I guess, your own sense of morality in terms of what justice is acceptable and, and the sympathy you feel from where you expected to feel the sympathy at the start is a, is a 180. Yeah, well, I, I think that's, that's, that's the thing is it's, it's kind of, it's beautifully, it's not, it's not a sort of binary film. It's like this person's wrong, this person's right. It kind of because of the what it unpacks and unfolds and the things you learn about them, and because also wonderfully the characters that sort of like Jules's characters, that's some pretty morally dubious stuff as well, right? Yeah. Um, so it's and and also the thing that it treads this line. The whole film there is a sort of very real, physical, violent, mortal threat to it. But there's is also what almost becomes bigger is this idea that you're identity that you form the kind of um the persona that you carry the clothes that you wear the kind of um legend that you create for yourself in life is is almost more real and i think that speaks to nowadays as well it's almost more real than who you are in your flesh and bones so there's this kind of dual tension of like those things always being fought for or protected and potentially destroyed so yeah it does so i mean doing it it totally made me question okay what 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 am i putting on as a front what what is me sort of kind of harnessing a little bit and hiding something else um and also similarly the things which i thought it was kind of going to subvert about looking at sort of that more toxic masculinity they also there's a there's a stage in the story where jules actually starts to really harness that power positively and And you kind of totally don't don't expect that to come from from his character given the sort of the the power, powerful position that he comes from, and what he's sort of trying to reclaim by going to that other side, if you know what I mean. So, yeah, it's, yeah, um, yeah. without giving too much away, it's totally it makes you ask questions as you go. 
Yeah, I think ad verbatim he uses uh, Preston's own words against him, which is a, a nice touch. It's, I mean, in a very literal sense. Uh, let's talk about Preston then, your character Preston, because I'm guessing here, I'm not an actor. Um, I'm guessing he is an appealing role for an actor to play. Growing up, watching movies, were there certain kinds of characters that you saw, maybe even specific characters, that really influenced the choices you're making now as an actor, including, for example, Preston? Oh, that's as nice of you to ask, because I think Preston is totally within the vein of the characters that I've and performances that I've revered growing up. I think I love, you know, nuanced, complex characters, which feels like a bit of a, you know, stock answer. But I think I've also admired slightly operatic big performances as well like i i mean i mean i admire all and and sort of understand sort of as i got older you know subtlety is subtlety is is vital and um but there are performances like i remember john legazano in um in romeo and juliet and the sort of like matador kind of Ugh. kind of positions that he was pulling in that in that petrol petrol um station gunfight like i mean heath ledger's the joker um gary oldman in true romance like People Every have taken Nicolas sort of Cage stuff. performance ever. Yeah, yeah, yeah basically. <laughs> and just, yeah, or interview as well. Um, <laughs> I, and uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, like, of course, like, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis. I remember being really struck seeing the trailer and then loving the film, but really struck seeing the trailer for um, The Master by Paul Thomas Anderson. And the, the very first trailer was a scene that wasn't actually in the final film, I don't think. Sure. And it's kind of like... Freddie Quell, Joaquin Phoenix's character, almost kind of getting some sort of psych test with the guy from the army. And he's got this kind of, he's pulling this almost like Popeye-esque face. And it's so dangerous and delicate and nuanced, but also kind of massive as well. Yeah. And those things, I remember being like, wow, that's acting. Because also like humans, like we're all massive. Like you, you pick anyone on the street and you that's that's a very strong walk that that person's got or this person's speech pattern or their gestures were all so different. Um, but I think there's almost sometimes I've learned working often you kind of bring things to yourself where I think there's a real amazingness to use a non-word in, in sort of going beyond yourself as well and kind of going bigger than life, um, which Preston, because of the conundrum of who he is, has has become that. As, as, as I say, the film's about drag and, and drag is sort of, a, I guess, taking an element of yourself and turning the volume up to 11 and in, in hiding certain aspects of himself he's done that um with this kind of hyper macho hyper sort of fashionable persona um that is a kind of is both truthful and part of who he is and also totally a front so to use the the word you use there bigger in in its most literal sense because i i think a, a lot of people will will know you from your lead role in sam mendes as uh, 1917 uh, and also pride it's fair to say you have transformed in this, so uh, you're a lot bigger, and uh, I, I know you're not spoiling it right now, so it's not permanent. But I was watching it with a friend, and I turned to them, and I was like, It's amazing how much a neck tattoo can change your perception of a person. Talk us through this physical transformation into press. Well, the, the physicality is like is something that I think I, I'm really drawn to in, in roles as well, because there's something when you kind of you know, you're adding layers with the costume and the, with the makeup. But if you sort of do it with your flesh and blood and sort of muscle and skin, you know, you go up or down or whatever, as long as it's relevant and done safely and all of that, like it, it feels, it roots you to the character. And and Preston is also rooted within this kind of idea of himself. And, and it is also just an aesthetic that is kind of recognizable for the type of man that he wanted to portray is he's wanting to be an alpha and needing to be an alpha. And sort of the typical idea, and that, but also the the film sort of works in subverting stereotypes. So he needed to be stereotypically alpha in a bunch of ways. So putting on as much sort of muscle as I could was a big part of it. The tattoos, again, our wonderful um, makeup and hair designer Marie Dean. It was always specified that Preston needed a a neck tattoo as a sort of story device to make him recognisable to Jules in the way that when Jules is out of drag, I don't recognise him. So I kind of imagined something pretty subtle because yeah. I've not got any tattoos, you know, maybe something below the ear there. And then Marie sent these references of these huge collars. <laughs> I, was like, I, don't know, I mean, we can try it. And then as soon as we did, we suddenly went, that's him. That's right. Okay. And like, 
well then if he's got a neck tattoo that can't be the only tattoo so we need to do much more here and much more there and we you kind of then used it to build a map of like i think he's someone who's not comfortable with who he is at his core and so therefore is always kind of shifting his outer layers to match you know he's a bit of a fashion victim in a, in a sense and so we kind of thought we could map the stages that he's gone through and like he got this kind of tattoo and that kind of tattoo was cool and he got that tattoo and that tattoo was cool and and then also some almost like subliminal messaging about him in terms of the more feminine side that is also innate within him that you know does get teased out at certain points in the story and, and a gentleness and we sort of try to like weave that nuance into the choices of certain tattoos and then also kind of show the armor of his persona in other tattoos so and all of that stuff really more so than 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 maybe any other job the the costume and makeup changed how i felt in myself massively and so was a huge part of the performance because also some of that's you almost don't have to work as hard as when you've got all those jewels and the tattoos and the haircut and the muscles you can talk in the exact same way that i do and you will receive it differently because mm-hmm. of how i look right you know, it's sort of understand and the film is about two men who understand the power of those aesthetics mm-hmm. um so just doing that helped help me out massively and, and- I'm asking as a, a man who's never had any musculature whatsoever. I've never been big. I've always been uh, either like thin or thin fat. Um, but what's it actually like, even out of character, uh, putting on muscle? Does it actually change the way you feel? Like uh, apart from forgetting the the gym side of it and the endorphins and the exercise and the health thing, being a slightly bigger build, you feel different. It does to me, and maybe that sort of speaks to certain insecurities, which is why I understand <laughs> Preston. But it does. I think there's a kind of, you know, the film is all about nuance. And I think, you know, with every day that goes past, life gets more nuanced. And as I get older, I understand the sort of nuance of life a lot more. But it, then there is at the core of it, which is also what the film explores. There's a sort of animal thing of like, mm. I'm the strongest. I'll beat you in a fight. Like <laughs> I could win this. Like if we went toe to toe physically, I would beat you. And that would sort of, that is a kind of like, it does speak to a sort of confidence to a certain part of you in certain contexts. And, you know, and I, we're not in that sort of day to day physical world, but that was also part of like the legitimate threat that Preston poses to Jules and within the story is I think it's, it's all, the film is also about the worlds that they come from. And I think that Preston, it was important to me that he was, he was rooted in a place where physically like there has been violence and that he has that kind of um what's that what's that what's kind of that switch or that kind of trigger where if he goes he really will go yeah. um and and so so yeah so so it does it this it, it does to me but maybe that's speak it again like analyzing myself speaking to an insecurity there somewhere i I think you've touched on my fear of ever getting too big because i'd be like this is great i can finally win a fight i must look for a fight uh just to (laughs) test this new theory wind up at like the end of raging bull just banging (laughs) a wall going what was it all for yeah sitting here in my ergonomic chair interviewing you this is much (laughs) more my speed uh you you, we mentioned uh, nathan stewart jarrett i'm 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 a huge fan. I think he's wonderful. I thought he's done wonderful work for years. Um, How was it working with him in this very interesting dynamic? I think you called it earlier a game of chess. These two characters who in these moments are trying to figure each other out, trying to work out what their next move is. I mean, that requires, I'm imagining, quite a a good working relationship with your co-star. Yeah, I mean working with Nathan was just an absolute dream like likewise I've admired his work and and seen him on stage and on screen and um he's a phenomenal actor and and a really lovely lovely man um so it was a it was a pleasure and I I think our thing was kind of we didn't actually have a huge amount of time before we shot the film we sort of we had our chemistry read and then we had a week of rehearsals where we were there together um a lot of which actually we were sort of I was in you know putting all my tattoos on and trying things out and he was trying on his heels and his costumes so but but there was a sort of real pragmatism I think to how we worked which might might sound sort of surprising given the sort of intimacy and intensity of like the relationship between two men on screen but like I say that in the sense of like we both knew we're going to have to kind of pretty much on day one figuratively and literally get undressed so let's dive in together let's do it you know let's not let's 
let's not beat around the bush let's just go for it and i i want to do that for me and for you and i know that you want to do that for you and for me so it kind of created this really open loving sort of place basically um that was sort of just built upon that we both just wanted to do a good job really and knew that to do a good job we'd have to dive in you know you know with i was i don't know the the, the phrase i was like feet first head first <laughs> dive in completely with all the limbs and then but then as actors as well it was a very supportive relationship because sam and ping our directors they always said that the edit was very important to them in crafting the chess match that we spoke of right. and so some of the time within scenes we'd play a few where it's like okay give me a take where you lean heavy like preston you lean heavy on being really scary for this one let's let's have you be give him give jules nothing give nothing away and just try and scare him or right. okay now do one where you're really enjoying this and you're kind of starting to open up and uh, and we would ha- and, and Nathan would get equivalent notes and, and we would sort of help each other with whatever version that Sam and Ping wanted to tease out of that scene so it felt kind of very playful and kind of dexterous the um, you know the making of it it's a wonderful film it hits UK cinemas on December the 1st and I, I, I want to give you a compliment without giving too much away I will say I don't think this gives too much away. If it does, it's going in the edit. But the way people, I think, will end up feeling about your character at the end from where they felt about them at the start is a testament to your performance. It's incredible and it's unexpected and it's a really thrilling movie. So well done. Ah, cheers. Thank you very, very much. It means a lot. No worries, man. Like I said, December the 1st, it hits UK cinemas on the subject of cinemas. It's now time, George, to leave this reality and enter a dimension of pure film where our virtual cinema awaits. You are our guide. We are your audience. Let's go on a trip to the movies. So we push open the doors to our temple of film and find ourselves in the foyer. There's an excited buzz as there always is in a cinema foyer, the hum of anticipation. It's your perfect cinema trip, George. Who have you picked, living or dead, to go with you? As I say, I was listening to an episode the other day, and um, I believe it was Jay Blakeson said a similar thing where I find it the biggest luxury to go on my own. <laughs> so I was going to, I would, I would why, take wait, why do you Why do you love going on your own? Tell me, because I do it's too, again, but why it's do you love just, it? It's so like you can just completely submerge in it. And it's, it's just, a, I just, lo- I just love it. It was something that I was kind of, when I was younger, I almost felt a bit funny about like who goes to the cinema on their own, and then I Wait. did it, and I was like, that was the best, best day ever. <laughs> like I'm gonna, you know, I used to, I used to go for sort of morning double double headers as well. Like you know, you go first screening, get a coffee, grab a sandwich, go in straight again on your own, and you sort of then have seven hours to yourself to have your mind blown and taken off onto worlds, and then go and meet someone after to then go, you know, debrief on all the films that you've seen. <laughs> but in light of it, sort of potentially putting a you know, hobbling the the rest of this wondrous cinema, cinema journey. If I'm not going myself, it would of course be my partner. But then, outside of you know, in a more cinematic world, I would love um, to sit down with Leonardo DiCaprio in terms of plotting his career, like the choices that he's made, the, the films that he's worked on, the performances he's given, and the fact he's sort of he's done it in such a kind of classy way. He's such a kind of Goliath of quality, basically. Um, in his work, in the work that he associates himself with, I would love to have some popcorn and just as the credits are rolling or before the adverts start, bend his ear on <laughs> his life. <laughs> and, you know, and him and Scorsese and, you know, all the sort of many people he's worked with and the choices he's made. And so I, so I might um, I might just casually take Leo. I mean... You've created a real issue, not for me, but for you here, because standing outside the cinema, currently a Leonardo DiCaprio and your partner, you can only take one. I'll take my, I'll take my partner then. <laughs> All right, we're putting Leonardo DiCaprio back in a taxi. See you, Leo. Off you go. Yes, yeah, the ultimate <laughs> power moves there. You know. Sorry, Leo. I'll get you next time. So do you and your partner have a similar taste in films? It's kind of, not, not always, but I think, I, I think I'd, I'd take it just because it's... um. You know, we actually sort of, it's few and far between the times that we get to go to cinema together. And therefore it is genuinely, it's genuinely such a joy because I love the cinema. And if if it's something we can do together, it's a kind of rarity. So given the magical nature of this particular foyer in cinema, I'd, um, yeah, I'd take her. 
So this is a this is a this is a rare treat taking your partner to this virtual cinema. I like that. It's really interesting what you say about Leonardo DiCaprio. I only read this the other day about Titanic. How he had to be convinced to do Titanic by James Cameron because up until that point, not to generalize, but to generalize, he played quite affected characters, and he felt Jack was just a very straight, heroic, nice role. And James Cameron had to explain that actually, that in itself. It's more taxing to play and create on screen so a, a kind of a, a complete character who is just a nice guy than all these characters he'd played previously. That's so interesting because I, it wasn't that long ago I saw Titanic again and I was watching him going, he's so bloody good because that's really hard to do. You know, the amount of tapes over the years, you know, you're trying to, you know, basically play Jack Dawson where you're kind of, you get the role that's sort of like a good looking, nice affable slightly kind of like a really nice but also a bit of a rogue um and that sort of there was such kind of light in his eyes um and such an energy about him i can kind of totally get in hindsight because i was too young when when it when it came out but like kind of go oh wow that's how he sort of went there's there is a magic to him where you go there's there's a special quality about him in that film with them both actually but you know particularly with him what he you know what he does is as you say it's difficult it shouldn't it shouldn't be or at least some some of the time, maybe someone have have people have that so naturally in themselves, and it sort of maybe ends ends there. But he's gone on to do such amazing work. Um, it's uh, yeah, I, I bend his ear on that. I, I, I call him in the in the cab and FaceTime about about that. Do you know what? I, I feel bad now. I'm, I'm bringing him back. I've called him. He's coming back. I'm, I'm doing a rare thing. Leonardo DiCaprio and your partner joining you on this trip. So there's a clock on the wall in the foyer. It reads a specific time. What time have you, your partner, and Leonardo DiCaprio gone to the cinema? It reads 10.32 um, because I feel like that's about that's a reasonable hour to sort of get up, get on the tube, and go to the virtual cinema, cinema world. Um, and I, I love the first showing of the day, um, which, you know, which I think sometimes is a bit later than that. But morning, I've got such good memories of going that kind of almost basically you, you get up, you get some breakfast, you get on the tube, and you go into town and watch a film. So I'm going to say 10:30. And so going in the morning screening around 10:30 is that purely a, a choice thing, or is it part? Does it that work better with your schedule? Is it almost a necessity that that is the best screening well, for you? I'm, no, I'm always I'm on morning. I kind of prefer I prefer early mornings than late nights. Uh, you know, and and again, there's something it feels really sort of there's something quite luxurious about you know so many folk are at work usually. And I, the only other version which I kind of thought about was like. Going to a packed cinema is very exciting. Like, you know, when a big blockbuster comes out and you go to like an eight o'clock screening and everyone's left work and had a drink and then gone to the cinema and you're in that buzz. But there is something I, I think I'd still stick to just being a morning person. I think I'm sort of almost start best and peter out as the day goes on. <laughs> well, I'm gonna I'm gonna start at ten thirty at the cinema. We're going at ten thirty two. Ten thirty two. Ten thirty two. Uh which because you've booked the tickets, which seats in the auditorium have you booked for us to sit in? Well, depending, I guess so. To depending on the size of the screen, um, I basically would go the middle of the aisle, so it could kind of the ratio works with whatever size screen. Then, if you go from the middle between the middle and the back row, so you know whatever that is. If there's if there's 20, 20 rows in there, row seventeen. Um, in the in, but so yeah, in the middle of the in between the middle and the back and then the center of that aisle so you don't need an aisle some people need an aisle you don't need an aisle seat you're happy in the middle of a row yeah I, I i don't like to see a film sort of from off to the side if i can i'll get to the middle as much as i can uh, you've picked one of the most popular seats on the show so i'm giving you the middle of the middle with exactly the right distance from that cinema screen so the final thing we need before we leave the foyer and into the corridor towards the auditorium. Every manner of snack and food stuff is available. What are you choosing to eat? Well, for, I've got two answers. So um, if there's a crowd of us, I'm going to go for salted popcorn and apple straws. Um, if I've snuck in on my my own, maybe it's again talking of like like femme building identities. I feel a slightly more cultured snack. I'd have some dark chocolate and a coffee. I think there's something very, again, luxurious about having a coffee in the cinema. And as well, if I'm on my own, I don't like to be eaten too much. Like I kind of just like to strip it back to just the film. But I also, because you're at the cinema, you want something. So I'd I'd go for a wee a wee dark chocolate and a coffee. Or otherwise, if you know if Leo was there, I'd I'd share a, a 
bag of popcorn, salted popcorn, and and apple straws from the pick and mix. Uh, one of life's little pleasures is dark chocolate with a cup of strong coffee. There's, I honestly, I so I think about it all the time. If I'm there ever like, what do I need to just cheer me up? Dark chocolate, hot, strong coffee. Hey, that's the thing. And you don't need too much. They could just be, both of them can be, can be we. Because I love the adverts in films as well. I always need to be there for the trailers. And sometimes it's quite satisfying if you just finishing it as the film's beginning, as you know, the, the titles of the kind of production companies are rolling and you just put down the coffee and like, right, I'm, I'm ready now. So that, that, was, that would be perfect timing if I can manifest that. Lovely. But however, as it turns out, you have guests. So it's a salted popcorn and apple straws air you're taking with you. It is time to leave the foyer and walk down the corridor towards the auditorium. Now, the corridor is looking a little bare at the moment, so I'm going to put up some posters along the cinema wall to illustrate some of your most important movie memories. And the first poster depicts, George, your fondest movie memory. The fondest movie memory. Um, Can I create like a weird sort of Barbie Heimer kind of split poster? Uh, right now, you absolutely 100% can. That's very, very in vogue at the moment. I, I used to I used to watch The Jungle Book every day, like every day. Um, so I would have The Jungle Book animation, and then I was as I sort of the first DVD that I had was um, was Gladiator, um, and I never got to see that in the cinema. Um, but those battle sequences I used to watch on repeat as well. So I would sort of like smush. The gladiator book together which <laughs> sort of sounds like a now like a weird version of the notebook like a sort of rom- roman romance or something um but i would have the jungle book and the gladiator there as my fondest you know cinema experience okay so jungleator or gladi book um jungleator because that you know that feels like also like it kind of could be like a kind of cool i feel like we could then create our own movie it would be like a sort of squid game-esque movie or something <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah uh, in fact in fact because i think i said it first i'm copywriting that i'm going to be pitching that that is a new show you're going to be seeing on your screens very soon yeah, John, it, it does feel like some of you know some of the decisions that they get made in terms of like well this has worked and this has worked let's put them together <laughs> so like if we are seeing jungle later in a few, <laughs> a few times you know so i'm be. imagining these with these were quite early cinematic experiences because going to the cinema um especially as a child did you always feel like from the very first times you went this is a this is a special event yeah i i um i have so many memories like a kind of general memory of that particular of the hallway that we're walking down now not not just the sort of magical virtual hallway but the um i've got like a multiplex hallway that that excitement like the point where you've just had your ticket handed in and you're finding out which screen to go to um and, then, and so, you know, often your screen is like way down the end of the corridor and that carpet with the pattern in it, the sort of muted sounds and the smells and, and the posters going by and, and people walking out and talking excitedly about one cinema, you know, sort of one, one film that they've just seen. Like those, genuinely, those corridors, like, and also it feels like when you're, when you're a kid, you often get taken when the weather's bad as well. So there's a kind of like warmth. You've just come in, your right. cheeks are still cold from outside. Your hair's maybe damp from the rain, and but then you're in this sort of soft, warm, you know, popcorn smelling womb of a place, and um, with all these kind of lovely, like dim lighting, but then the posters shining, you know, and and there's always oh, I want to see that, or, have seen that, or, that's coming out soon, and it's just full of excitement. So, yeah, that 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 corridor is is a very fond memory, and and I remember I've got so many fond memories of that place, and it never gets old. To be honest, every time I go in whatever context that kind of entrance to the cinema always feels special. All right, let's continue down the corridor. The second poster we're putting up depicts your worst movie memory. I have never, I feel slightly bad about this because I know how much goes into a film. And actually, I've since seen the stage show, had a really great night, but I really didn't get on with Mamma Mia when I watched it. It's the one film I nearly walked out of. Um, I don't know why, I think maybe I had like a story be in my bonnet but I went with some friends and was a bit like oh, I'm just not I'm just just not getting it I'm just not getting it <laughs> and and it didn't I just didn't get it that night and so that's the one time that I've considered you know and it wasn't like it, it wasn't sort of particularly acrimonious but it was just that thing of like should we should we head and I've never had that I've never never had that and I feel terrible because you know I would never I've almost feel like you know that's sacrilege to say that about 
a movie, you know, in general, and that it was made by some great people, and um, you know, and it is a great show. But for some reason, that that's the one memory I have of being okay with leaving a cinema, which we which I didn't leave, but yeah. I've never ever felt that otherwise. I'll always kind of. That's the other thing about the focus of a cinema is even if you're kind of like, okay, this is, which is something I don't think we have as much nowadays when we watch more at home where like, you know, you, you're sort of like, okay, well, maybe should we just finish it tomorrow or something? We You can't because you've committed to the ticket. Um, so I'm, I'm now feeling terrible guilt for Mamma Mia, which I'm sure is, <laughs> you know, perfectly great film. Um, I'm feeling really genuinely guilty now, but that was the one time I sort of nearly went, shall we? Well, I don't think you need to feel too bad about uh, Mamma Mia. It's still the biggest selling DVD in UK history. So it did all right. Okay, that's fine. That's fine then. The only person I felt sorry for who got who got quite a drubbing in the press from the critics was Pierce Brosnan for his singing. And I just, I feel bad for him because he did interviews and he said, look, singing as an actor makes me feel very vulnerable. But even though I know I'm not a great singer, I know people found it entertaining, which I think is true. Obviously, you've... Um, appeared in a previous guest on this show's wonderful Proclaimers uh, musical, Sunshine on Leap, uh, Dexter Fletcher. How was that for you, obviously, singing the Proclaimers in that? Well, yeah, again, I'm, I'm hitting myself with a guilt stick now. Like, yeah, because I get it. It's Singing's hard. Like, I remember with, you know, wonderful Dexter, like the, the day of the read-through, um, turning up, and he was like, right, there's Roddy, who'll be doing this, you know, the um, the playing guitar for the for the songs. And I was like, what, well, sorry, we're singing today. And he was like, well, yeah, it's, it's a musical. <laughs> I was like, I didn't think we'd sing on the read-through. Like, oh my word, like, you know, it's terrified. So, but the beautiful thing about it is like, like anything. And again, you know, sort of looping it to feminine ways. When, you, when you've got to do stuff that you're a bit nervous about um, <laughs> and you do it and it's grand, it's the most wonderful feeling afterwards because you're like, wow, we did that. And I, I want to do it again now. So, um, yeah. All the, you know, but I, I understand. I've done some, some, yeah, a few, few kind of musical films, and and the singing is always a joy, but at first terrifying. You mentioned at the start about the, some of the scenes you share with um, Nathan Stewart Jarrett as Jules, uh, your character Preston in the movie being very intense. Were you able to break character, sort of, you know, quite soon afterwards, or even if something was going wrong, and just sort of have a laugh about the moment? I think it genuinely changed every every day. I think it's one of those ones where actually, given the intensity of this, this the story and the happenings, it was a very joyous set. Like, and everyone kind of almost needed to maybe have a bit of levity and a bit of light in between. Um, and, but that said, then there, there were other scenes where you know, um, if if it had to, if you had to be in a certain zone, I think kind of Nathan and I intuitively was like, okay, no, we're both going to sort of stay in it a wee bit for this one. Um, and even that, that was the joy of working with him is that some scenes, as soon as, you know, they could cut, a joke will be shared because you can almost tell like, okay, we need to, we need to <laughs> kind of keep the ball in the air here and kind of get back to us for a second. And then other scenes, you know, and it might be an intense scene, it might not be where suddenly you'd be waiting to go and suddenly you just say something in character and you realize you'd quietly be improvising between the two of you to kind of get, so you were kind of getting up to a, a trot before you galloped into the scene, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I do. I just wonder, you know, as not an actor, when you watch scenes like that, you're like, do they then sort of just everyone sort of go, okay, silence, or are you always go, cool, glad we did that, that's good, we've done yeah. it. Yeah, it's it's a mixture. It's always the kind of the big glad we did that. It usually comes at the end of the day, but but no, it was it was a it was like the the energy on set was really wonderful with them. It was a very young crew as well. Like everyone was and and everyone was just sort of so enthusiastic about what we were making. So every, there was a real kind of vibe and kind of commitment. Okay, well, let's continue down the corridor, George. The third poster I'm going to put up is the last performance that brought you to tears. Um, this one, uh, it's funny, I haven't actually cried for a long time at, at the cinema, um, and I'm always moved when I, when I go. The one thing that nearly made me cry, in terms of it was sort of stuck with me, which again, this is maybe one half of the, the Schmush poster, is Past Lives I saw recently. Oh, and yeah. I thought that sort of... The beauty and the kind of understanding and the sensitivity of that film and what it's exploring and how it articulated itself was so beautiful. That really struck me. I didn't sort of, tears weren't streaming, but that's nothing against, you know, the film. I was really sort of moved and thought a lot about it afterwards about, again, it's it's sort of a, a film about sort of when you sort of maybe leave a part of yourself and then you kind of, you 
that part of yourself gets left behind when you go and embrace another part of yourself and how that part of yourself is brought about is to do with the context, but it is all still deep in you. Um, so I really loved that film. Um, and the last film I think I properly cried at was actually Coda, um, the the um, the film about the um, the deaf family or the one, the daughter who's who still has her hearing, and that that yeah. scene at the end, which I won't give it away, but it's about her kind of doing her performance to to get into music college, um, and that that had me totally, and I thought that was a very beautiful film. It won Best Picture at the Oscars. Um, it, won, it? it won Best Picture. Yeah, it won Best Picture at the Oscars, and it was a really beautiful film. Yeah, film about family and this young girl who um, is all, the, all her, her her parents and her sibling are are deaf, uh, and and she's not, and so she, kind of she plays a very important role within the dynamic of their family, and yet feels kind of torn when she suddenly discovers this talent within herself and wants to go. And pursue at music college, but worries about that what that will do to her family and and their needs for her. And again, it's a sort of film about kind of I guess mutual understanding of a kind of crossroads in life. In the same way with past lives, uh, that it's really touching in the way they kind of do the last couple sequences um, where they unite all the things they've explored. It's just it's just gorgeous. And um, tell me a scene that really made you cry as a child. Um, was Et. E.T. Um, when again, spoiler alert for anyone who's not seen it, but there is a, a kind of a, you know an assumed near death, and I was absolutely gone every time, like properly wailing, and it always hit me. I always found it so tragic, and then the moment with which you know I won't say too much more, but the scene progresses from there is it's like destroys me um, every time. So I watched it this morning because I was like, I'm going to remind myself of uh, of this scene. And it's the bit where Elliot is reaching over to him and E.T.'s dying. And he's like, E.T., please stay with me. I'm like, yeah. oh, I can't do this. I haven't slept have enough. You, have you seen that young actor's audition as well? Henry Thomas. Yeah, it's like the, the, the audition for the film is on YouTube as well. And he's doing, it's from the bit just before when he's sort of saying, you're scaring him, you're scaring him. And you see him and he's just pouring out. And you just, I, I get it, Steven Spielberg. You just hear this voice in the background and go, you got the job, kid. <laughs> it's like, but it is this extraordinary, like exquisite audition. Um, yeah, it's really worth a watch. Just look look up, you know, Henry Thomas or, you know, E.T. audition. It's quite something. Uh, yeah, be careful with the E.T. one though. I should have read the, the tagline. It's, it's on YouTube under... The saddest scene in cinema history. And I was like, I'll be the judge of that. Broke me this morning. <laughs> okay. Our final poster then, George. This depicts your unpopular movie opinion. I'm really struggling with this because I feel like pretty, I feel pretty diplomatic with films. Like I really enjoy and appreciate all kind of, you know, efforts, whether I kind of, whether they chime personally or or, or not. And I'm not, no, never sort of railed against um, oh, you know that's you know, that's sacrilege. That that you know that film's nowhere near as good as it's thought, or that film's sort of way better than it's given credit for. So there's sort of ones that I feel like maybe slightly unexpected. I remember loving the, like a surf film, Blue Crush. You know, remember that for that film, Blue Crush. I do. I remember just really enjoying that film and watching that a bunch of times as well. And and I think because it, maybe it's not a film that's sort of spoken about as much now. I just yeah. remember the scenes. Yeah really haunted by this the, the lead character she has these sort of nightmares of wiping out a pipeline and banging her head on the reef underwater Good. i've got a real thing about like the sound in those nightmares was so but there was a kind of wet kind of as she banged her head on the reef um and it always really kind of jarred me and stuck with me and, and really affected me so um yeah maybe, maybe that I'm going to take it. I think I think Blue Crush is, is not a movie I think as many people have seen as you think have seen it. So I think your unpopular movie can, opinion can be that more people should have seen Blue Crush and I'll put the poster for Blue Crush. Okay, perfect. Uh, right then, George, we have reached the final set of doors. These lead into the auditorium. Now there is, as often in the cinema, there is a queue of people hoping to join yourself, Leonardo DiCaprio and your partner in the auditorium. Do you want to let them in? You don't have to. You're not obliged. You can have it just the three of you. Or do you want a busy cinema? What are you feeling, George? Oh, no, no, totally. Yeah, like get get in. I think we need to get people into the cinema. So please get them in and 
tell them that there's films that you know there's going to be 20 minutes of adverts so text their mates hey. before they turn their phones off um and then uh you know Good. get them down we want a full we want a full house Right then, the crowd are pouring in, they go wild, they take their seats. You are in the middle of the middle. It's time to play a few things on the big screen before we get to the movie you picked for us tonight. The first thing we are going to play is a trailer for the movie you are most looking forward to seeing at the cinema. Um, I'm most looking forward to because I haven't seen it yet. Is Anatomy of a Fall? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's really good. It's really okay, good. That, that reaction makes me want to see it even more. I'm really excited to see that film um and i'm hopefully going to see it you know very very soon um but but anatomy of a fool is what i'd like to see um weirdly uh this is going to be a repeat if anyone listened to the last episode um we've been talking about it on the literally the last episode of this uh, the dog don't know how you how much you're into animal performances the dog in anatomy of a fool uh it's a it's a border collie it's real name in real life is messy it gives one of the most phenomenal animal performances you've ever seen in a film do you really? do you do you follow animal performances? That's a weird I was going to say, like, I'm imagining it sort of getting kind of acting lessons from, like, the Bacardi cat or something. Like, <laughs> you know, I actually, I actually did, did a, um, like, my very first job was when I was a wee boy was this film Peter Pan and they had the St. Bernard who played Nana, the, you know, the the, 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 the the dog in it. Um, and, and the guy who had the St. Bernard, I think, also trained the Bacardi cat. You know, remember that advert where the cat sort of jumping and dancing? Um, and he was like, yeah, that, that was me. So... <laughs> And maybe they may now have an acting school, like you know, the sort of, you know, the, like the equivalent of the actor's studio, but for for for, for dogs and cats. I, do you know what? It, it would not surprise me because Messi, and I only found out about this award, Messi from Anatomy of a Fall. Uh, there's loads of other good stuff in it, by the way. I'm just focusing on the dog at the moment. This dog uh, won the Palm Dog at the Cannes Film Festival this year, which is an actual award. Is that actually a palm? No, there's not a palm. It really is. I wouldn't lie to you, George. It's a palm wow. dog. Can as in as in can of dog food. Yeah. <laughs> very good, very good. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, it, it's a big deal. This dog. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, um, they're, they're smart dogs, so I have I have no doubt it will be good. It's it's good. Also, the rest of the film is fantastic. We're going to play the trailer for Anatomy of a Fall. Right then, next thing we're going to play on the big screen after the trailer for Anatomy of a Fall is the movie moment that makes you literally or metaphorically pump your fist in the air. Um, I, um, what, what I mentioned, um, the, um, the John Leguizamo gun, gun yeah. fight at the beginning of Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. And I always remember that kind of matador pose with the two, the two guns and it's so flamboyant. And that, that first fight, I remember doing like Romeo and Juliet at school and it's, you know, a text that you do sort of a, a few times in English and then in drama and then seeing that version of it and all the kind of. It's just so fantastically flamboyant, the whole thing. Um, and then when he drops to his knees and he's got the kind of Virgin Mary on his kind of vest, I was like, it's so over the top, <laughs> but it's so perfect. Um, I'd say that kind of like fist bump, like not, not fist bump, there's sort of two hands kind of, uh, you know, matador stance into a sort of drop and roll with a <laughs> cigarello and steel high heels um, is probably my fist bump moment. Or, you know, and failing that, the epic kilt lift and speech of Braveheart. Okay, yeah. both yeah. both good moments. I feel you're leaning more towards John Leguizamo's performance as Tybalt in um, Romeo and Juliet, though. And when I think of a fist pump, I think of it as more being a sort of fist pump, sorry, being a more kind of reactive, but, whoa, that was cool. Like, and I remember yeah. as a wee boy being like, whoa, didn't see that move coming. Um, and it's, yeah, just sort of, it was so kind of balletic as well. Um uh, yeah, so I'm going to go with Tibbles. Great choice, great scene. I mean, Baz Luhrmann, like I won't. Yeah, lie. The, the, I mean, the with the petrol can dinging, you know, and the lady being hit, which has been hit over the head, and he's there going, yeah, da 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 da. Like it's just so much, and just the high speed kind of like the edits of the, it's so kind of frenetic and brilliant. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I sort of went, oh wow, Shakespeare's now called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, lovely. We'll play that awesome petrol station sequence from Romeo and Juliet uh, with Tybalt doing his stuff. Right, the next thing we're going to play is what you consider cinema's most shocking moment. Now, I was wary of this because it's a big old spoiler alert, but one of my favourite films is No Country for Old Men and Llewellyn, the character of Llewellyn, who's played by Josh Brolin, 
um the way things the way things come about with his character you've been so with him for so much of the film um when a certain shift in the plot occurs um i just thought it was so brilliantly told kind of offhand the way that 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 particular turn in the story is given that i so did i was kind of for a while afterwards like hold on did that just that's not gonna okay wow that's that's happened that's actually okay that's it that's that bit okay that's happened wow okay um so i would say in a sense it's not like a jump scare but it it totally floored me when that that the, that sort of plot point which i'm not going to name for for anyone who's not seen it um happens given the way that it's given the way that it's told and, and given to you as an audience i am going to put a big old spoiler warning in the show just so we can talk about it Spoilers. Spoilers. so this is llewellyn's death um it's weird isn't it because it just breaks because it's the cohen brothers it just breaks the the structure that we're all ingrained as all it's ingrained in all of us about what we expect to happen in a movie yeah it's and it's the thing is you're, you're so with him and there's so much silence in that film you're with these kind of people on their own all the time and you've been so with him and he's such a capable character he feels indestructible and then you suddenly with tommy lee jones who's driving you know the cop who's kind of piecing together this this case and he's just driving quietly and you hear just in the distance off screen these kind of bang 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 and this car and it's shot in a wide so you're sort of from his pov this car just like ricochet onto the onto the onto the road ahead and just drive off and you never you never see it you don't know who what and you're like whoa and the same way in tommy lee jones's character you kind of go god what happened there good and then you pull in and you realize that that was that was that you know you you then there's a shot that night where you realize that the 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 murder that just took place was was Llewellyn and you just see him on on the floor for a second and you're like hold on is that he's not coming back and then then he's never referenced again and you know there's no music there's no sort of slow zoom you just and it's so kind of true I guess in the way that like death can just stuff people out you know and and especially a death like that is it just happens and it's irreversible and happened really quickly and there wasn't that build-up it wasn't a big fight sequence you weren't even there for when it happened you just you just came across him later on and you can't believe that the person you've been following the entire movie you just come across in a wee bit so um forgive the spoiler alert but that i thought the telling of that was so brilliant and and it really floored me when it happened and a bit like i I well a lot like femme because i think in in your film femme so much is said from looks between uh, your characters and there's a moment at the end of the scene you're talking about in your country for old men where Kelly McDonald's character comes up and Tommy Lee Jones doesn't say, you know, he's dead or anything like that. He literally just looks at her and takes his hat off and she breaks down. And it's it, it, like with Femme, it's a, it's, a, it's a case of being able to show things without needing to handhold the audience with dialogue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It reminds me similarly of, I think it's Saving Private Ryan when you, when you go to the sort of, you've never met them before, but the mother of what would be the Ryan brothers, I believe. Um, and you just sort of, it pans outside this woman as this as this army car pulls up and two guys get out and you and she just drops slowly to the floor and the camera kind of booms down with her and you just know that she's got this you know what she knows and it's you know and you really feel that you know that the world's been pulled out from underneath her that is cinema's most shocking moment for you next up what is the line or piece of dialogue from a movie george that has most affected you i say this is from shane meadows this is england the uh, the original film um, and it's a scene where Sean, who's played by Tom Turgus, is kind of getting his head shaved and to sort of initiate himself as a skinhead, basically. And with the character of Woody, who's played by Joe Gilgan, just goes, honestly, mate, you look sterling. And that, that the way he says it is just so brilliant. And the the use of the adjective sterling, it's just great. And he goes, honestly, mate, you look sterling. Really proud of you, Sean. And it's just so kind of heartfelt and strong and simple. I, I always love that line. I always love that line and how he delivers it and that scene. That 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 film really affected me when I when I was growing up and I watched that film so often. Um, all the performances in it, you know, I'd, I'd never seen a film that was sort of that kind of real. I, I kind of know now a wee bit in the way that Shane works and the sort of amount of improvisation, but the um, 
you know, Stephen Graham's performance in that. And now Stephen Graham's kind of like one of our household names, so to yeah. speak. But yeah, I remember there's the electricity of when Combo comes into the room in a, in another scene and you just know like, oh, I like this guy, but I know he's trouble. And I, yeah, I'm really sort of nervous. And he, he just had that thing that his performance, he had that thing of like, I'm, I, he, he makes me nervous. And it's sort of like, yeah. as a sort of person, it's kind of weirdly attractive and terrifying because you know that, oh, He's very beguiling, but he's also I'm I'm wary of this guy. And it and it makes him magnetic to watch. Yeah. Um but to go back to the line, I've just always loved honestly, mate, you look sterling. I think he's just brilliant. Right then. It's booming out through the Dolby Atmos speakers. Honestly, mate, you look sterling. Uh you did yeah. it. You, <laughs> did, you did it far better. Right, the final <laughs> thing we're gonna play through the same speakers before we get to your movie is the best use of music in a movie the best use of well I've got a dual answer that what I'll give you sort of we answer first is my initial thought is one of the most effective I've ever been in the cinema was when I saw Snowtown by Justin Cazell um, about the Snowtown murders in South Australia and Justin works with his brother Jed um, who Jed does the music for his films and there's this kind of like thrumming thrumming is the only way I can think of to sort of describe it this kind of tone that goes and the film begins with this quite, I can't think of that, maybe sort of quite bizarre, but very low key voiceover, a sort of story of a dream. But under, and this, and this, you just watch the road going by, fields going by. And underneath is this kind of kind of like feeling. And I, I remember that film when it finished, kind of dropping back about a foot into my chair. And and woke and I the next morning it's the only time genuinely I woke up sad the next day like I woke up sort of holding myself. I found that movie so affecting and and I think so much of it is that music is that this because they also do this really amazing thing where Justin uses kind of like a uh, I think it's almost like stop motion. So you see these port those bits in it where the characters after they've committed a certain act in it and you're watching these kind of them be there but they're just sort of it's just still pictures but they're just moving slightly. And you realize actually that it's sped up over about, it's like a 20 minute shot of them just sat, not moving because you're going to get a cigarette for a second and it goes, and it's sort of, it's that nightmarish thing of being like, oh God, those guys have not moved for 20 minutes, but you're sort of watching it in real time, but they're juddering all those little movements. And that was supported so much by this kind of thrumming, throbbing music score, which is sort of under your skin the whole time. And there's not like big, you know, musical sequences but that I found so affecting, I wanted to mention that. And then, but then on top of that, as a sort of jewel mentioned, is to go back to This Is England. I remember I've always loved since that film, the use of Ludovico Agnardi, the, um, the pianist, and and the choice of music for for that. When, and just kind of offsetting a kind of toughness, um, the offsetting the visuals with a different type of mu- music. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a couple of sort of montage sequences in that film at first kind of quite happy some of them um where you see the skinhead skinhead gang together and they've got a real sort of identity as a gang and they all look amazing and there's a real sort of like i don't know counterculture energy to them but it's this stunning single you know single person classical piano going underneath it and then later on there's a terrible terrible attack in the film which is then supported by another piece of the same musicians that's just one guy on a piano and it's so beautiful but what you're looking at as that beautiful music is happening um just the offsetting of those two things i found so affecting so um i guess you best can, to kind of go from honestly make you look sterling into enyanadi or to because <laughs> we've had one this is england to go with snowtown i i honestly because of your description of both I, i'd be hard pressed to, to to pick one so i'm gonna let you listen to both of those as we build the climax of our night, George, it's time to declare to Leonardo DiCaprio, your partner, this packed auditorium, the movie out of all others you have picked for us to watch tonight. George, what are we watching? We're watching No Country for Old Men by the Coen Brothers because it is exquisite and it's one of my favorite films it's one of the most affected 
I've been in the cinema. I similarly, when I watched it, I watched it in Whiteley's, I believe, in Queensway. Okay. Yeah, I know. The Odeon yeah. that used to be there. And I remember dropping back into my seat when the when it cut to black and the credits began and sort of exhaling. And I didn't realize I'd been holding my breath. And everyone's performance, Javier Bardem, again, that same thing of like enormous performances, like so subtle, so nuanced, but enormous and bizarre and beautiful. Um, and it's also one of those, some of those films which I've loved, I've showed to friends in the past and you kind of realize, oh, that was particular to the time when I loved it. And I've shown No Country to, of, uh, no Country for Old Men to, to, to friends not that long ago who hadn't seen it. And I was like so proud because I was like, it's still so good. And they were like, that was amazing. I was like, yes, I know. Um, it's just masterful. So I would love to be in a full house and watch that again the cinema and um, when you're showing it to friends do you do that thing which i do i don't know whether it's me or whether it's a, a thing when you're showing a movie that you love to people you watch them watching the movie you've seen the movie you're looking at their yeah. reactions yeah there was a bit of that but then i was so conscious you know there's the bit you know when he's he's going to check the crime scene and the headlights come up at the cliff and you think oh shit and that and i but i was like i wanted them to have the oh shit moment and so i didn't want to look at them to be a bit like because you think, because then they know that something's going to happen. So I was doing everything to just keep watching the screen neutrally, um, you know. So because you kind of the headlights go off, and you're there with it, and suddenly it goes when you're like, "Oh no, 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 no!" So um, yeah, I I, I was trying to focus, but I was watching them as well. So White Lee's uh, Odeon uh, on Queensway was this a solo cinema trip, or did you see it in company? It was actually with my mum. He's actually always been a, a great sort of cinematic guide. So it was, um, yeah, it was my mum and I, you know, after school one day. That's great. So who's, whose choice was it? Was it your mum taking you? Did oh, your it was mom... mom. Yeah, it was my mum. I think I kind of wasn't even fully aware of like the Coen brothers. I didn't know like, oh, we're going to see a Coen brothers film at that time or like, you know, Roger Deakins or Josh. But I think she would have known about their kind of track record more than I at that point. I was just kind of like going as a punter and then was just so absorbed by the whole thing because um, it's just it just holds you it just holds you the whole time well well done to your mum for taking you to see uh, yeah. No Country for All Men and giving you that experience hey George wow Carl, what a journey that's it the curtains are closing the guests Leonardo DiCaprio your partner everyone they're smiling milling out thanking you for taking them for an incredible morning at the cinema but before you go this is the big one Tell us an exclusive, never-before-heard bit of information about your career, past, present, or future. Genuinely got sort of butterflies now. I feel like maybe some <laughs> stuff I haven't said for a reason. <laughs> um, there's been a couple of lovely um, through lines where, you know, sometimes when something's kind of... I, I, I love the idea that certain things are kind of meant, meant to be. Um, and there, I did a, a film when I was 15 called Defiance um, and Daniel Craig played the lead character in that and it was the story of the Bielski brothers who formed a partisan group during the Second World War to protect uh, Jews in the forest in Belarusia um, and he played the character of Tuvia Belsky and he had his sort of hero leather costume jacket and I remember then doing a film uh, another World War II film um, called Where Hands Touch uh, years later, like I think nine years later um, and there was a scene with Christopher Eccleston um, who was playing my father and myself um, and I was playing a German character that time and they and they were, there was this scene where they were sort of discussing, you know, having a father-son talk about everything and the kind of the commitment to um, to, the, to the war effort and they gave me this fantastic leather jacket to wear I said, oh, you know, I, I like this jacket. Where's it from? It feels kind of very right sort of for the character. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, it's actually been in a World War II film. That was Daniel Craig's jacket in the film Defiance. And I said, no way, I played his baby brother. And I was like, how funny is that? Like sort of nine years later to be wearing your big brother's jacket in an entirely different World War II film. Um, so so there there we go. There's, there's a wee sort of something. Thank you for that, George. What a way to end because now, do you know what? Your taxi's arrived to ferry you and your guests back to reality. But before you go, 
it is time to recap your perfect trip to the movies. You are going with your partner and Leonardo DiCaprio at 10.32 in the morning. You're sitting in the middle of a row in the middle of the cinema. You are not having your favorite solo snack of dark chocolate with a nice cup of coffee. You're having salted popcorn, apple straws, and a bottle of water. We're leaving the foyer and heading down the corridor, putting up a poster for your fondest movie memory, which is a mashup in the spirit of Barbenheimer of The Jungle Book and Gladiator. We are then putting up your worst movie memory, which, and you stayed till the end, and you feel bad for saying it, but your worst movie memory was 2008 musical romantic comedy, A Mamma Mia. The third poster we're putting up depicts the last performance that brought you to tears, and that was Oda, the climax to that movie. The little special mention for E.T.'s death when you were a child. And the final poster depicts your unpopular movie opinion. You are putting up a poster for Blue Crush as a movie that not enough people have seen. Right, we enter the auditorium. We are playing the trailer for Anatomy of a Fall. We are then playing the movie moment that makes you literally or metaphorically pump your fist in the air from Romeo and Juliet when Tybalt does his stuff. Cinema's most shocking moment is Llewellyn's death in No Country for Old Men. The line of dialogue from the movie that most affected you. Honestly, mate, you look sterling from This Is England. And the music we are playing is the score from Snowtown and Ludovico NURD's score from This Is England. And here we are. The movie we are screening tonight, George, you have picked No Country for Old Men. And that is it. Thank you for oh. taking us on a trip to the movies. Have you had a good time? Thank you. I've had a great time. That's That sounds like a wonderful trip. Like, <laughs> all my favourite things. Thank you very, very much. That's really lovely. It's been a pleasure joining you on this trip. Thank you for taking us. Have a lovely evening, George. Yeah, and you, Alex. Thank you so, so much for having me. And uh, yeah, all the very best, man. And as George's cab carries him away from our virtual cinema, off into the distance, we must all leave his movie paradise and return to reality. But to soften the blow, how would you like a pair of tickets for a night out as a very real Odeon cinema? Each week, we give away a pair to someone who leaves us a review of the show on Apple Podcasts. It's that simple. So jump on there, leave us a review, and if I read it out, we will send you some tickets. The competition is only open to UK residents, and the tickets exclude Odeon Leicester Square and Odeon Lux. And just before I say my final farewell for this episode, don't forget you can find the full video for today's George Mackay interview and indeed for every guest on our Trip to the Movies YouTube channel. So please head over there, and as I said, if you do do that... Please hit subscribe and help us grow the podcast. And that really is it. I'll be back next week when another guest fills our cinema with their celluloid dreams as they take us on a trip to the movies. Bye-bye.